Welcome to Oral Valley Catholic, and this is Father John Arnold. During this pandemic, people, not just Catholics, are angry, fearful, and prone to anxiety. Lots of reasons. Restricted access to the Catholic Mass, rioting in the streets, the national election, devastation around the world, and most recently, the needless loss of life in Lebanon. Our lives were upended, our health threatened, our economy erratic in ways we've never experienced. New unemployment claims have started to decline, but are still extremely high. The American Psychological Association's annual report, Stress in America, that's a catchy name, demonstrated that people whose fears about the future of our nation as, quote, a significant source of stress, end quote, rose to 83% in June 2020, up from 63% in 2017. You know, life's always stressful, but wow, it's really getting pushed into the upper regions right now. There's been fear in our country before this pandemic, but it is as if we are living through a perfect storm, and we read about Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a storm in today's gospel. What a great opportunity for a preacher. The Gallup poll asked Americans whether they worried a lot yesterday. That's the question they sent out. The people who answered yes to that question rose from 36% to 45% from 2006 to 2018. So this whole tick up in stress and unhappiness, this isn't just the pandemic. This is something that's been going on in American culture for quite a while. Quote, feelings of stress, end quote, according to the Gallup poll, rose from 46% to 55% during that same time period. So it's pretty widespread. You know, conspiracy theories aside, and by the way, if you doubt that it's all a conspiracy, then you must be part of the conspiracy. But conspiracy theories aside, fear, anxiety, and stress are increasing. And people are becoming increasingly irrational about some of it. People are afraid of their leaders. They don't trust in government, the church, and elsewhere. It's not that we shouldn't, as Ronald Reagan said, which is always a good line, trust but verify. But just the idea that you can't really trust anybody, that's a crazy idea. People are afraid of leaders they don't trust because why? They always think someone's out to get them. Young and old are concerned about the environment, the threats to uh, the water, and, and people are concerned that the unscrupulous are taking advantage of the problem of climate change to turn it into money in their pockets. People worry about getting good work, bad influences on their children. And if you're a grandparent, hope to be beyond this, you worry about your grandkids. Chapman University conducts this annual survey of American fears, and I attached it to uh, my homily notes if you want to look at it. It's really worthwhile. I attached all of their stuff on American fears. It really is very um, insightful, I thought. But they did their annual survey of American fears for 2018. It was reported last year, 2019. And that survey said that almost 74% of Americans 
were afraid of corrupt government officials. They even broke it down by political party, and there is a, a, a significant difference between political parties, and it probably has something to do with who's in power. Well, in addition to this fear where three-quarters of the people are afraid of the government, 62% of Americans are afraid of water pollution. 57% were afraid of not having enough money for the future. Turns out that women are more afraid than men. People are also afraid, catch this, of ancient civilizations like Atlantis. 57% think that's something to be afraid of. What? But there we are. 41% are afraid that aliens have visited our planet in the ancient past. And 35% believe that they are visiting in modern times. Could be they're visiting Washington or Phoenix, who knows. But 58% of Americans are afraid of ghosts. And of course, people are always afraid of God. Yep, afraid of God. That's what the gospel is about this Sunday. Well, the Gospel's from Matthew this Sunday, and it brought to mind a famous quote from G.K. Chesterton, and he said, When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They then become capable of believing in anything. And if you look at Chapman University's Survey of American Fears, wow, some of that is kind of weird stuff to be afraid of. Uh, but in the gospel today, it's all about fear. And the Christian notion that's rooted in God, that it's love that casts out fear. You know, we have to do things to take care of the problems that we're afraid of. Um, this is not a call to non-action. But to react out of fear never calls on our better selves. So let's set the background for today's gospel. I will remind you that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and is alive with God the Father. Okay, if that's not true, that's a weird belief. It'll be like believing in Atlantis, right? But what we trust is that these apostles, who are not perfect men, were sent by the resurrected Christ to proclaim the truth about what it means to be a human being that God is calling us to union with him. And they start out with, do not be afraid. You know, Peter and Paul and the rest had plenty to be afraid of. It isn't just the storm. How about the Garden of Gethsemane? Or how about proclaiming Christ in a hostile Roman environment? But they believed in this world that, my friends, is weird. God's world has angels. God's world has the souls of the dead. It has purgatory and heaven and hell. That it's not all material reality. And that this presence of God in material reality is very much at the core of the meaning of the story of Jesus who comes walking across the water. Here's what I want you to take out of this gospel today. That this story is a theophany. A theophany, theos means God, phonos sound. This is a visible manifestation of God. 
the person that walks across the water to that boatload of disciples is not the Jesus they became so comfortable with. It's Jesus showing his deep interior reality. And that reality is his life in the Trinity. So consider this story. Last week, Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fishes, do you remember? And then he withdrew to pray. That was in Matthew 14. And then he sent the disciples ahead by boat to the other shore. So this story is so important, it's told in all four Gospels. Not every story is told in every Gospel. However, this story is told in every Gospel. And so here's what it says about uh, Jesus coming across the water. Meanwhile, the boat, already a few miles offshore, was being tossed about by the waves, for the wind was against it. And during the fourth watch of the night, he came toward them, walking on the sea. Now, the fourth watch of the night is between 3 and 6 a.m. And I will remind you of what your dad once told you. Nothing good happens after 10 p.m., so be home and be in bed. These people are out at the wrong time of night, and it's a dangerous night. Jesus is not at home either. He's wherever his disciples are. And then here's what he says to them. He says, take heart, I am. The translation isn't always like that, but that take heart, I am, is at the very heart of the meaning of this gospel. The Greek is ego eimi, which means I am. It's the very same phrase that is used in the book of Exodus um, when translated into the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Do you remember uh, Moses says to the burning bush, who should I say sent me? And the burning bush says, I am who I am. And so I am becomes a designation for God. And in Greek, either in the Septuagint or in the New Testament, it's uh, the, the, the Greek phrase, ego eimi. And that's the phrase used in this story. Well, you just listen to the gospel, hopefully. And so Jesus gets into the boat. And as soon as he does that, that's when the wind stops. And then the story says they quickly reach shore, according to St. John's version of it, that as soon as Jesus got there, they were in safety on the shore. So when they're safe ashore, that's when the disciples begin to fear. It's like something weird happens, and it's when you stop and reflect on it that you have that impulse to be afraid. In Mark's words, in Mark's gospel, it says they were utterly astounded, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. Fear reached its greatest intensity at that moment, is what Pope Benedict said in his book, Jesus of Nazareth. It reached its greatest intensity as soon as Jesus was with them. Why? Because in all the stories Old Testament knew, the manifestation of God to his people, it's a frightening experience. So the disciples' fear is the kind associated with the theophany. You know, in the first reading, which was about Elijah, it said that God was going to pass by to remember and he's not in the storm, he's not in the earthquake, is he small, silent sound? Well, again, when Moses saw, saw him in Exodus, when he went up the mountain, it said he was going to pass by. 
because that's why the scriptures here in this story says Jesus was walking by, he was passing by. He does what God does. It's how you see God. You see God mostly in the rear of your mirror. So how do people respond to it? Because you say, I'm not afraid of God. My friend, when you're sliding sideways down a icy road, heading for a cliff, you're afraid you're gonna meet God. So how does St. Peter respond? Well, do you remember when Jesus was preaching from his boat earlier in the gospel? Then he tells Peter to go out and, and throw his, nest, his nets out and he pulls in this abundant catch of fish. Do you remember what Peter does? He falls down on his knees, worshiping Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. You'd find that story in Luke 5. And then <clears throat> the idea that walking on the water is this divine prerogative. In the book of Job, it says, God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. So these the, the disciples are not making up stories to fit the Old Testament. Jesus is using the Old Testament, all these men know, a, sim, a symbology, a, sy, a symbolic life, an imaginative expression. So that they associate what he chooses to do to demonstrate his divinity by linking it to what they believe about the presence of God that comes out to them from Exodus and 1 Kings and Job. So the Jesus who walked on the water is not the familiar friend Jesus. It's the human and the divine. There's something about Jesus that is loving, reconciling, comfortable. There is something about him that's terrifying. A theophany in John's gospel occurs when the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples in the upper room. And that theophany provoked adoration and the proclamation by remember doubting Thomas, truly you are the son of God. Hey, where have we heard this before? Well, that's what they also say in the boat because it says both in John's gospel and in the story about the both, about fear, about doubt, and then pulling out this insightful proclamation about Jesus' divinity. Pope Benedict wrote in his book, Jesus of Nazareth, the following about this story. Jesus has come so that human beings may have life and have it in abundance. His only gift is life, and he's able to give it because of the divine life is present in him in original and inexhaustible fullness. In the end, man both needs and longs for just one thing, life, the fullness of life, happiness. In one passage in John's gospel, Jesus calls this the one simple thing for which we long, perfect joy. Man needs just one thing, which everything else is included. He must first delve beyond his superficial wishes and longings in order to learn to recognize what it is that he truly needs and truly wants. He needs God. And so we now realize what ultimately lies behind all of the Johannine images, where Jesus says, I am the truth and the life. I am the resurrection. I am the way. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. That I am phrase. Who God is, a description of who God is. Behind all these Johannine images, according to Pope Benedict, 
Jesus gives us life because he gives us God. He can give God because he himself is one with God, because he is the Son. He himself is the gift. He is life. Remember the last couple weeks I've been talking about the intersection of this horizontal experience of happiness, intersecting this vertical experience of meaning. Jesus didn't take away war, uh, pollution, pandemics, ghosts. He didn't have anything to do with Atlantis. What Jesus brings is what's fundamental, and that is life in God. All of this other stuff is like froth on top of the basic mystery of our human life. And for Jesus to manifest a theophany is supposed to draw us into a a certitude based on faith, who God is and ultimately what our lives mean. Why do we doubt God's presence? And why does Peter sink? You know, because he tried to walk on the water and went down. Well, Peter sinks because he's afraid and he doubts. He sinks the same way that night in the uh, patio in front of the high priest's house where he denies Jesus three times because he's afraid. Why do we have problems with God? Fear is the root of some of our doubts. But when he saw how strong the wind was, the scripture says, he became frightened and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught Peter and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? So why do you think St. Paul said, In my weakness, grace makes me strong. It's because God came not because we're strong, because we're not. He came because we're weak. And this pandemic, all of these anxieties, including killer robots from Atlantis, all of this is so much rooted in what we think ultimate reality is and our place in it. Fear is at the root of doubt often. And it was fear that caused Peter to deny Jesus three times. You know when I say fear is at the root of doubt often, Sometimes we call it doubt, but really we just don't understand what we believe. That's why we have to have this devotion to learning about God. You cannot know, love, and trust someone you don't know anything about. If you have fear, think about learning to know your Savior better. And so in a moment, I want to talk about a couple practical things that we can do that will address the problem of fear in each of our lives. So we live in a time of fear. It could set mean that there's just not much love for God or for one another there. If you think that may be at the root of some of this fear, then think about two different kinds of things that you can do to address love in your life. First, love of God. How about devotion? How about, that's what the role of devotions is, the rose, uh, the rosary, um, the sac- devotion to the sacred heart or the divine mercy chaplet or Eucharistic adoration online. There's lots of places to, to do Eucharistic adoration online. You know, in the resurrection stories, remember that the response of the apostles to Jesus walking on the water or to the theophany of the resurrection is to worship. Matthew says, those who were in the boat did him homage, saying, truly you are the Son of God. So 
think about what you can do practically if you get the opportunity to come to church. Catholics genuflect as they enter church for the same reason that the disciples bowed down to Jesus in the boat on the lake. We genuflect before the tabernacle because it's a fitting way to honor and worship the presence of God, just as the disciples did it in that boat. If you're not coming back to public celebration of the Mass, well then when you drive in front of a Catholic church, you pass by Jesus like Jesus passes by you, make the sign of the cross as you go by the church. That's another way of honoring God. We were taught that as little kids, and I still do it. Remember that Jesus is no less present in the tabernacle than he was on the day that St. Peter tried to walk on the water. And whether you're 50 feet from him in the church or 200 feet away as you pass in front of him, uh, as you're going down the road, to bring to mind his Eucharistic presence um, there in the tabernacle is to once again remember the one you love. And so here's the second idea, because that's about love of God. How about love of neighbor? I'm gonna give you four ideas to put into practice to see if you can get to be better at loving the people that you're called to love, both by your commitments and by the gospel. Number one, confess your fears to someone you trust. Um, hopefully you have somebody you trust. It may not be any government official, um, but you have somebody you trust. So don't be such a stoic. Don't feel like you gotta press it down all inside. Be vulnerable to another person because to be accepted in your vulnerability is you're opening yourself up to another person's love. So talk calmly with the other about your hidden fears. If we don't acknowledge what we're afraid of, I would suggest that fear may come to dominate your life like that invisible Atlantis monster in the closet. Many people carry their fears stoically, never sharing them openly with others. Fears we refuse to acknowledge, I think, will bite us in the end. So find someone you, who you trust and talk about your fears. Here's idea number two. Express your love for another person. Tell someone you love them. Uh, don't make it weird, but tell someone you love them. Take the risk. Tell a family member that you never tell that you love that actually you do love them, especially if you haven't done it in a while. Tell someone you love them every day. I don't think they're going to get tired of it, especially if what you do is also uh, in conformance with what you say, that you try to serve them and help them. You've probably heard about the German who loved his wife so much that one day he almost told her. Well, you don't have to be that guy. The more you say, I love you, the more real it will become. We all grow into love because those who abide in love abide in John. Letter of John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. Idea number three, take a risk and tell a friend that you love them. Whoever tells their friends that they love them, but you do love them. It's not a romantic love. That's why we get so creepy about all of this. Love is bigger. Love is affection. Love is friendship. Love is the devotion tried over time between husband and wife. Love is for that you want to try to take care of a homeless person. Love is grief. Uh, love, grief is love what I said last week from St. Augustine. Um, love opposed. 
Uh, joy is love fulfilled. Desire is love unfulfilled. Fear is love trying to run away. And so don't run away. Make your love manifest. Um, tell somebody that you love them. You know, young people having a harder time making a commitment, having a harder time saying I love you and I will love you till the day you die. Wow, there's no future in anybody's life without love. And so maybe what I say to you is take a risk. Tell someone that you care for them and would like to get them to know, uh, to know better. Rejection is not so horrible. You will survive it. It'll probably become one of your favorite stories when you become, when you become older. The problem of fear is fear keeps us from committing. And fear of committing is a disease that will rob you of life. If God is love, and abiding in love is abiding in God, then the refusal to commit to anyone or anything in some ways is a reflection of your relationship with God. Don't be afraid. Love someone. Become a priest. Love the church. Love your parishioners. Because my parishioners are very lovable. Easy. Number four. Love your enemies. Okay, that's a crazy idea. Where do we hear this before? Love your enemies. Try to follow Jesus' commandment to us. He gave it for our own good. You hate that politician on, on TV? Say, no, give him a listen. Try to understand where he's coming from. Compassionate listening without exploding. Anger is an expression of fear. And fear is love that is uh, escaped from. Love deals with fears in a transformative way. Love accepts even another person whose ideas may very well be inadequate compared to yours. But at the same point, it's another person. You're loving the person. The ideas, who knows? Maybe they'll grow and you'll have more in common. Hey, here's something. Try having a conversation with someone you deeply disagree with and exercise compassion. Don't roll your eyes. Don't look away in disgust. Put your finger on your chin, nod appreciatively, and say at the end, you've given me much to think about, and then try to mean it. And think about this person who is not trying to be your enemy. At the end, you disagree. Well, this is mostly what our lives are, right? Nobody is a carbon copy of me. So what's going to happen if you love your enemies? It's not like killer robots from Atlantis are going to make an alliance with your enemies by calling in a conspiracy of space aliens, ancient and modern, and they're all going to line up to attack you. That's probably not going to happen. Maybe not going to happen. You know, it's a fear out there on the edge. But at some point, you got to deal with your fears because it's making your life miserable. Instinct, instinct, your instinct of fear does not care whether you're happy or not. It's non-rational. You, my friends, are rational. Take control of it. If it's not feasible to run away from everybody in your life, and it's not, and it's not feasible to fight and beat them down, and it's not, then fight or flight really is not a great option for you. That's an instinctive reaction a rational reaction, a strategy for life is to try to cast out fear through love. 
So our instincts to fight or flight, don't care if you're happy, keep saying that to your non-rational impulses. You don't care that I'm happy. Swim against your instincts. Take a chance on love. You might find yourself fearlessly walking on water. This has been Oral Valley Catholic. This has been Father John Arnold. And I'll be talking to you again next week, hopefully.